Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. How do you think you would fare if you were a seminary professor whose last name was Boring? <laughs> Eugene Boring received his doctorate degree and was asked by Phillips Theological Seminary when it was still in Enid, Oklahoma, to come and teach New Testament studies. He was such a good professor that he was offered a prestigious endowed chair at Bright Divinity School, TCU in Fort Worth, and when the Interpreter's Bible, a big 12-volume series, was completely redone a few years ago and became the new Interpreter's Bible, an equally big 12-volume series, of all the professors in the country they could ask to have written the commentary on Matthew, they chose Dr. Eugene Boring. When he comments on this particular passage, he says that John baptized Jesus is bedrock historical fact. If it had not been, it would not have been recorded in all four Gospels because it gave great trouble to the early church. If baptism was about repentance and forgiveness, why would Jesus need to be baptized? And if Jesus was bigger and more important than John... Why would an inferior be baptizing a superior? You can count on it, he said. This really happened. Now, his baptism is, is described slightly differently in the four Gospels, but baptism has become such an integral part of Christianity that when we baptize babies, you hear me immediately say, through baptism we are initiated, right? I took Latin in college. I know this word. Initiatus in Latin comes straight into English. It means a beginning, a start. But it can also have to do with one who provides a new beginning or a new start for someone else. So, in Jesus' case, we believe this was about the beginning of his ministry. Whatever he'd been doing this first part of his life, and many scholars believe that Joseph had died when Jesus was in his early teens. We know he had four brothers. We know he had sisters, meaning at least two. If, in fact, Joseph and Mary lived together as husband and wife after the birth of Jesus and had a baby every 18 months, maybe 24 months, Joseph is mentioned when Jesus is taken to Jerusalem when he's 12, but never after that. If Joseph died when Jesus was early teens, then perhaps Jesus felt he needed to stay around 
and see to it that these younger children were able to fend for themselves before he could begin his public ministry about age 30. Nonetheless, this is the initiation. This is the beginning. This is the new start for him as baptism becomes a new beginning for us as well. Let's see how Matthew tells the story. First of all, we're sure that Matthew is aware of the work of Mark. Scholars are convinced universally that Mark's gospel is the oldest of the four. Certainly it's the briefest of the four. We're very sure that Matthew and Luke had Mark's gospel in front of them because they follow his basic outline straight through. However, Matthew sees things a little bit differently and Luke a little bit differently from Matthew. In this case, Mark had simply said, Jesus went to the Jordan, John baptized him. Matthew adds, Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now what he's added here is a very important ingredient to Matthew, and I think an important one, and that is, that Jesus was not swept away by the preaching of John, as many were, Already he was an initiator himself. He was now ready to begin this, this difficult trail that God had set out for him. It was an addition of purpose, you see. He went there for this very purpose, to be baptized. Dr. Lawrence Stratton has written recently about this season of epiphany. He reminds us of a commercial now 40 years old. Orson Welles was already an Academy Award winner, a noted producer, director, writer, actor. But he's getting along in years. He's rather portly at this point. He's wearing a tuxedo. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony playing in the background. And Orson Welles holds up a glass of wine and says, We will serve no wine until it's time. Some of you might remember that. We will serve no wine until it's time. And Dr. Stratton says, look how, how John gets into the ministry of Jesus. He says right there in chapter 2 of his gospel, Jesus went to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And as the wedding festivities were moving along, suddenly his mother said to him, the hostess is running out of wine. And Jesus said, what has that got to do with me? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. As the process of winemaking, according to Dr. Stratton, takes a long time, you realize all those beautiful green runnings from the, from the, from the grapes start from one little clump when you see the grape fields that Gail and I have seen in Italy and France, in late spring even, they're not pretty, not green. All those beautiful vines have died and been cut away. And you see acre after acre of wires and these, these rootstock every so many feet. They've been cut right back to what we've called the trunk almost. And it's only when the days get warmer and the spring rains start to fall 
that these little green shoots start to move along the wires until they touch the ones from the one closest to them and they wrap around each other and around those wires and eventually you have grapes. Through the long summer, you have lots of sunshine and occasional shower. And then there's picking and washing and sorting and squeezings put in huge big barrels and aged and aged and finally into bottles and corked and turned and turned. Timing is very important. Dr. Stratton says it is in God's scheme of things as well. Timing is everything. John in his gospel goes on to say that Jesus went to Passover three times after he began his ministry. And on the first two occasions, the authorities in Jerusalem wanted to arrest him but they could not because his time had not yet come. The timing is God's timing. And Jesus is the initiator of this initiatory process. God's time is being fulfilled. Number two. For Matthew, this is not about Jesus repenting. This is about fulfilling righteousness. Matthew knows that John has been railing at these people who came down that winding road from Jerusalem to hear him preach down just north of Jericho on the Jordan. You brood of vipers, he said to them, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? You come here wanting to be baptized, but you do not bear the fruits worthy of repentance. And it's as if Jesus is saying to John, you're right, John. These people are not doing the right things. But you and I will do the right things. You will do the things for which you've been sent, and I will do the things for which I have been sent. There is strength and power in doing the right things. I was reading a review of a play out of a theater in Florida just recently. This play is called The Best of Enemies. It's based on a book by the same name, which chronicles the story of two very real people who lived in Durham, North Carolina. The white man's name was C.P. Ellis, and the black woman's name was Annette Atwater. The mid and late 60s, the civil rights movement finally culminated in the passage of significant legislation in our country to try to right many of the wrongs perpetrated against black people in this country for so long. In Durham, the schools were desegregated, and day after day, white children, black children, were fighting each other. Those who were leaders in Durham were desperate. And in a meeting one day between the mayor and the superintendent of schools, there was a discussion how can we get a public forum where we can talk through these difficulties and make our situation better? And a young social worker, advisor to the mayor, said, you need to have the strongest, most raucous white voice in this community co-chair that committee against the strongest black voice in this community. And who do you think that is? Well, that's C.P. Ellis the grand, exalted cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan, and Annette Atwater. Annette, father had abandoned the family, 
Mother had died young. She had been shuffled from family member to family member, sometime foster home to foster home. Now she was a full-grown adult woman and had foisted all her hatred and all of her rage against white people. But when they call C.P. Ellis and you get a call from the mayor's office, superintendent of schools, ask you to do a big job, he thought, well, sure, that'd be wonderful. And when they called Annette, said, sure, she'd love to do that. And then they were told they were co-chairs of this meeting. Those who planned the event were taking bets as to who would kill the other first. But this young social community worker really believed there was a chance here. And as the conversations went on, these two discovered something they had in common. They were both dirt poor. Had been poor all their lives. That to the leadership of Durham, CPLS was poor white trash. And to those same people, Annette Atwater was a big mouth female constantly generating trouble. But in each other, they found this common strand. C.P. Ellis said one afternoon to Miss Atwater, you know, there would be no upper class if they didn't keep us underneath them all the time. We got to do something better for our kids. You and I got to do something better for our kids. And they agreed on that. They shook hands. He resigned his membership in the KKK. They became the strongest advocates for equality in education for every child in Durham, North Carolina that that city had. It's about doing the right thing, the right thing. And Jesus was going to do that better than anybody else. Number three, suddenly the heavens were opened. You need to remember that Matthew did not know he was writing Scripture. He was recording the gospel of Jesus as he understood it. It would be a long time before his writing, the writings of others, would be counted as holy writ and put together 27 scrolls of them. The holy writings were the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, 39 significant scrolls, but nothing lately. It was even said in those scrolls, the Lord did not speak often in those days. But suddenly, the heavens are opened above Jesus. God's about to say something new. I told you that at the end of the year, almost every publication has its lists. The New York Times. 10 greatest nonfiction books last year, the 10 best books of fiction last year, even the worst writings of the year. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had its ideas, the 10 best business books of the year, and those not so good. Other publications, the 10 best movies, and 10 worst movies of the year, those that fall somewhere in between. Well, religious publications have their list as well. And one of the religious books that received a lot of acclaim last year was called What Happened to Sophie Wilder? 
What happened to Sophie Wilder? Sophie was a well-educated, sophisticated young writer. The whole world ahead of her. Many admiring her. But Sophie was aware one quiet weekend that there was something missing in her life. She'd never been taken to Sunday school, never taken to church. That's not what she thought was missing. But on Monday when she decided to tell a friend that she felt something was missing in her life, and a couple of days later she told a different friend and then a different one, some of them started talking about religious pilgrims, people who had been searchers, maybe the way Sophie was becoming a searcher, that maybe she should read the works of some of those searchers. And she started with Thomas Merton and then moved to another and another. And what she found was they were saying, you need to go to a faith community. You need to seek out the right faith community for you. You'll find that some define themselves only by how they differ from everybody else in their community. That's not the one that's going to help you the most. Others will talk of grace, love, and compassion, and understanding, and a drive for peace and justice in God's world. Those kinds will help you. Well, right down the street from her office, there was a beautiful Roman Catholic church, and she saw on the bulletin outside that they had a daily mass. She could slip away from work a little while every day, and she started going to Catholic mass. At first, she had no idea what a Gloria in excelsis was, how one says glory to God in the highest, as we just did a few moments ago. She wasn't quite sure why they were singing Sanctus, Sanctus, as the priests moved to the table, meaning holy, holy, set apart, set apart. We're moving to a set apart place with sell apart, very special symbols of bread and wine. She didn't really understand at first why the priests were leading the congregation then in singing the Agnus Dei. O Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. But she went back the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And one day, though she wasn't sure she was supposed to, she got in line as people moved to the table. And what had been missing suddenly was right before her. That she too was a child of God, one whom God loved so much he would ask his son to go so far. What happened to Sophie Wilder? She met the Lord. Number four, the Spirit of God. The Hebrew word is ruach. The ruach of God descended upon him. It literally is an adverb here. It's dove-like. Descended upon him dove-like. There are very few references to doves in the Tanakh. 
Most scholars think this may be a reference to Genesis where it says the Ruach of God hovered over the waters until finally he separated some waters from the other and there was dry land. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and chaos went scampering and order came. That one, that one's Ruach settled dove-like on Jesus and said, this is my son. I'm really pleased with him. Elizabeth Sherrill, almost 90, still writing devotional materials. She wrote recently, in the last few months, that she doesn't get as many letters as she used to. Not many people are letter writers, she says. But she's kept some letters that were particularly significant to her. She says about 10 years ago, she got a letter one day in her mail. She didn't recognize the name or the address on the envelope, and when she opened it, she realized immediately she didn't really know this woman. But the woman said, when you and your husband had that beautiful apartment in New York City, I was working for a company that put slipcovers on people like you, your best dining room furniture, living room furniture. I mean, when you had something really nice in your living room that you wanted company to see at its best, that you didn't want grandchildren dropping cookie crumbs on, you used covers over them. I put those on. One day she said I'd been sent to your apartment. I was having a really rotten day. I was a single mother. My husband had left us. I didn't have any education, no real future that I could see, no, no light that my life was ever going to get any better. I showed up at your apartment, and while I worked on your furniture, I don't know what possessed me. I just started pouring out my heart to you. You seemed to be a good listener. I poured out my heart to you, and just when I was getting to the worst part of it all, your phone rang. And then it rang again, and again. And you reached down beside you and pulled it out of the wall. It changed my life. It changed my life that someone as important as you seemed to think it was more important to hear my story than to talk to one of your friends. I felt maybe there was a worth in me also. When you were baptized, or this morning when you come to the table, listen for the chimes in the ceiling. It's reminding you that God's Spirit will descend upon you dove-like and say, I know you. You're my daughter. I know you. You're my son. I'm so glad you've come home one more